Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The topic before us today is to look at the unique issues of late teenage drug and alcohol use. Dr. Robert Moran, who lives in Florida, specializes in and also teaches addiction medicine and psychiatry. Dr. Moran, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. I've heard it said that a child who goes through age 21 without smoking, using drugs, or abusing alcohol will probably never do so. I've also heard that they say that no one has any greater power to influence a teen's decision to drink or use drugs more than his parents. Does your experience hold with that? Well, it does seem to be true that the age preceding 21 years is the most vulnerable time for the onset of a substance problem. However, I don't know if I would necessarily agree that the parents have the most influence over the individual. We're learning certainly that the peer group during early adolescence is extremely powerful in playing a determining factor in the development of a substance use problem. So the early adolescence being a 12, 13, 14-year-old and the peer groups are more powerful than than later on, if if that's correct? Well, they certainly do have a powerful effect at that time. Now, how that weighs against the influence of the parents, I, I don't think has been completely worked out, but we do know that it does have a powerful effect. Okay. We read a lot also that drug abuse may be a disease. And a lot of work is being done to research, especially the National Institute of Drug Abuse and so on, to look at this in great detail. But if it's so much of a role model issue, then where do we draw the difference? Do we look at it as a disease and try to intervene as doctors trying to prevent a disease? Or do we look at it more from a sociologic point of view and try to change their role models? I think first it's important to distinguish between drug abuse and addiction. Okay, please do. Now we know that addiction is clearly a brain disease. Drug abuse is a pattern of using various substances and alcohol that may predispose someone to developing addiction, but not necessarily. There are many factors that probably predispose an individual to developing the disease of addiction. Such as? We look at uh, factors such as family history. We know that genetics play a very significant role in the development of addiction. There are also other factors that probably have been developed during the prenatal period, early childhood experiences, and then later on other experiences during adolescence that also predispose. There are other medical problems and psychiatric problems, for example, that may predispose one to the development of addiction. But abuse is not necessarily a gateway to addiction, or am I being too simplistic? Well, abuse is certainly a step in the direction of the development of addiction, but just because someone abuses drugs doesn't mean they will necessarily develop the disease of addiction. By saying that, I also want to emphasize that I am in no way minimizing the significance of abuse itself. I I agree, because one of the problems is that in advance, if nothing else, we don't know who with using drugs will end up with addiction. That's correct. Right now we don't. So there is a chance regardless. We can't trivialize it. Certainly, certainly. And if we do identify that someone is beginning to abuse drugs and alcohol, we need to take that very seriously and we need to address it in order to correct that. 
I also would like to bring onto the table the whole notion of the developing brain. A 12 and 13 year old has a brain that's simply not as mature as an 18 year old's brain. Is there a difference? Do we know of any difference in what happens when we expose a 15 year old's brain perhaps to alcohol as opposed to an 18 year old's? We know there are differences between a 15 and 18 year old in terms of maturity. Yes, certainly. We're learning so much about neurodevelopment and its beginning during the prenatal period. And in fact, we have evidence now about the significant effects of drugs and alcohol on the developing brain during exposure in utero. But your question concerns adolescence. Definitely, adolescence is a period of time where there's a great deal of activity occurring in the development of the brain, which also helps to make the brain very vulnerable to the toxic effects of the drugs and alcohol. Now, we know that as part of mature development, the brain is is moving in such a way that the part of the brain that's responsible for executive function, including judgment and the ability to predict likely consequences of behavior, is probably the prefrontal cortex. And that plays a huge inhibitory role on managing impulses and stimulus-seeking types of behavior that we see so commonly in, in the adolescent. Now, to begin with, before any exposure to drugs and alcohol, that part of the brain is not fully developed yet and will not become fully developed until adulthood in probably the mid-20s. So they are not only... <laughs> Uh, at risk for engaging in self-destructive behaviors just by virtue of being an early adolescent, but when alcohol and drugs are involved, they probably impair the further development of that prefrontal cortex so that they are better equipped to handle these impulsive behaviors, which are a way of attempting to manage emotional chaos so that so many adolescents go through. So that must make it much harder to treat if someone has been using drugs since age 12, 13, or 14, by the time they're older, they, they've not matured, basically. They've not developed the way they should have. That, that's correct. And in fact, the development has gone awry. They're probably on a completely different path. The effects of chronic use of drugs and alcohol leads to what's called neuroadaptation. So the development of the brain is now very different from the normal or the person who hasn't been exposed to the chronic use of alcohol and drugs. Now a different part of the brain is probably calling the shots in terms of determining behavior. We read so much such a wide use of prescription drugs now as opposed to the traditional street drugs. Do we have any data to suggest that they are safer from a, from a purely biological point of view? Safer because they're cleaner? Are they different than alcohol? Do you have any sense of that? And I realize that's a very open-ended question. Well, the, the issue of safety actually is one that's theorized to be related to how young adults are perceiving these these drugs. Good point. Surveys are showing that the young adults and late adolescents are thinking, uh, probably erroneously, that prescription drugs are safer than street drugs. And that is offered as part of the explanation for why their use has developed in prevalence. But the fact remains that these substances like pain pills and sedative hypnotics, benzodiazepines, opiates, for example, contribute to the development of addiction in certain 
vulnerable individuals to no less extent than street drugs do. This is an interesting point because I've heard people say that they feel safer taking a prescription drug because it's cleaner. But once the actual molecule gets into the system and gets to the brain, its effect on the brain, if I understand you correctly, is no different than the traditional street drugs. Absolutely. So they're deceiving themselves and not really reading it correctly. Yes. Oh, that's that, that's frightening, and it gets back to the whole notion of trivializing that they think it's a safer way to, to use the drugs. Is there a difference in genders? Do, do you see that the girls are more so than the boys, or vice versa? Well, you know, I, I think it depends on the particular population under study. So, for example, what comes to mind is the particular neuropsychiatric disease called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We do see a higher prevalence of that in boys than we do in girls, in young boys than in young girls. And now we know that that particular disorder does predispose individuals to developing addiction. So in that particular population, then we would be more likely to see the boys developing addiction. But I don't think that uh, we've yet looked at the comparison between the development of addiction in girls with ADHD versus boys with ADHD. Okay. That would be an interesting study. Which brings us to the question as to why people are using drugs. What are they finding in their drug use in terms of relaxation, controlling anxiety, controlling phobias or whatever, why do they take it? it, it again, is there a general consensus of, is there a general, maybe too broad of an answer to be sure, but a general answer is why are so many kids turning to drugs? You know, I don't think that there is a simple answer to that question. And I think that it is a probably a heterogeneous group of disorders. What we're learning, for example, about major depression is that there's no single reason why someone develops an episode of major depression or has that particular illness. And I think that's what we're learning about addiction as well. I always find it interesting that when I speak with people, whether or not they're coming to me for the treatment of addiction or not, what their experience is the very first time they ever take a painkiller, an opiate for example. And there's a huge difference between the individual who tells me that he or, or she experienced just a, a very uncomfortable feeling, such as nausea or just a desire to not take another pill, versus that individual who takes the pill in response to having some kind of pain, so it's often a prescribed pill, and describing a sense of euphoria and feeling better than he or she ever has in their life. And we ask, what's the difference in these individuals? And now we're learning that it probably has to do with the certain protein receptors in the brain and how that molecule in the pain pill, the opiate, for, for example, affects that receptor differently in those individuals, which begins to then describe this underlying vulnerability that someone may have to the development of addiction. Is there any way that we can know about that in advance, that we could test them when they're in elementary school? Wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be great. And I think one day we'll probably get there. Right now, there are certain candidate genes that code for the development of variants of receptors that probably predispose individuals toward developing dependence on either alcohol or opiates. But there's still a lot more research that needs to be done before we can screen, for example, individuals to identify their particular vulnerability. Is there a, a typical case, a typical cluster of background situations and problems that come before you? Or is it, as you said, very heterogeneous? Well, it, it, it is heterogeneous, although patterns that I have tended to see 
are college age young adults, 20 to 23, 24, and they have had a very typical pattern of the development of their drug use. So for example, beginning in early teens using uh, tobacco and alcohol, and then this progressing very quickly into marijuana use, which typically progresses into experimentation with many other drugs and ultimately toward opiates. And that progression in that particular sequence of drug use is probably the most common that I've seen. Okay. So given that, how would you intervene? What Do you need to have the parents there? Is the model that you use to treat a late adolescent the same as you would treat an adult, an older adult perhaps? Probably not because the late adolescent is struggling with many developmental issues that the older adult has probably not handled well, but is, has gotten to a new developmental level in life. And so, for example, in the older teen young adult, this person is still struggling with issues of separation from the family and the establishment of autonomy and independence and developing new relationships with other people outside of the family and becoming an adult in essence, both from a biologic perspective, that is developing an adult brain, and, and from a psychosocial perspective, that is becoming an individual capable of being independent from the family. Is there any particular warning sign that tells you that intervention or treatment or rehabilitation is unlikely to work. And what I'm, what I'm looking for here is the flip side as well. Is there any sign that says it's likely to work? Can do you have any ability to predict? It's a very complex issue at this, in this particular age group because, first of all, I think it's most of the time absolutely necessary for the family to be involved in the treatment. And we often see within the family factors that are either helping to maintain the problem of addiction in the individual or the identified patient. The old word of enabling? Yes, for example, enabling, or possibly factors that may help to engage the individual in treatment and retain the, the individual in treatment. And so these dynamics, the family dynamics, need to be identified as early on, and they need to be, the family needs to be pulled into treatment early on because they may be inadvertently helping to maintain the process that the treatment is attempting to undermine. So, and I've heard many families tell me this, we need to send into rehab so he will be fixed and the question then is, will you join him? And a lot of time the parents don't. That's not a good sign. Right. It's not. It's not a very good prognostic factor. You know, often when we look more closely at the families, we, we see things like disciplinary practices and unresolved conflicts and ongoing alcohol and substance use within uh, one or both parents. And factors that need to be addressed alongside the adolescent or young adult in order to make the treatment work for the entire family. And treatment is usually just not a 28-day rehabilitation experience. It goes on a long time thereafter, and w with that, there's money issues. Yes. We used to think that the Minnesota model, that the 28-day program was sufficient, but now we see that that's just the beginning, and probably has a lot to do with changes that are occurring in the brain. 
So for example, now there are data that show a minimum of three months of intensive treatment really needs to occur in order to set the foundation for ongoing treatment. So this is really acute treatment versus maintenance treatment. But there's no such thing as acute treatment alone because the likelihood of relapse after that three-month period is still very significantly high. Do groups like AA and NA work well with teenagers? Is it, is it adapted to teenagers? The 12-step model can apply to the teenage uh, group and, and can do a very good job. The problem is that they, they have to be well prepared for that. I think the 12-step model ultimately can help a lot of people and has helped a lot of people, but it's not something that necessarily individual will be able to benefit from right from the beginning because as I said before, there are so many complicating factors such as co-occurring medical disorders, co-occurring psychiatric disorders, family issues that all have to be addressed that essentially prepare the individual to be able to benefit from some self-help groups like the 12-step 12 12 program. Interesting. I, over the course of my years of working in this field, I have seen people get better. And I, I know that too often we talk about the negatives and, and the failure rate. And the failure rate is there. There's no question. We all know that. But I've also seen people beat it and, and put their life back in order. But it takes time and it takes work. It's wonderful to see it when it happens. Yes, absolutely. And that keeps the hope that it's a reasonable endpoint to achieve for everyone with, with addiction. I think when we're identifying that people are not achieving that, we always have to look more closely and ask ourselves, what are we missing or what are we not doing? What What is the treatment plan and how does it need to be modified in order to help the individual in front of us. I think quite often, and, and more often than not actually, the co-occurring disorders are missed. At least 50% of the people in this age group we see with addiction are suffering from other problems such as mood disorders like major depression, bipolar disorder, sometimes psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, and very often attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And that is one that is probably missed more than the others. And if these disorders are not treated aggressively, then the likelihood of maintaining abstinence after any particular treatment program is very low. It brings up an interesting point because the general field of psychiatry or mental health in, in, in general is beginning to look further and further back into earlier and earlier appearances in terms of age of these disorders. We're trying to trace it backward to get hints that, oh my goodness, this kid at the age of 10 is showing signs of depression already. And we used to not do that. That's correct. That's correct. And it's consistent with what we're learning about the process of addiction probably being a neurodevelopmental disorder, that it is something that is the endpoint to a vulnerability that has been part of the individual probably from birth. So if there is a take-home message, it's if a parent is observing some problems in their children, don't wait. It won't go away intervene, study your kid, get to know your kid, get help, and begin the intervention. So hopefully the, the end point of getting into some drug or alcohol problems will, will not exist, will not occur. The sooner the better, and in fact now we have the studies to support that the earlier the onset of substance use in the early adolescent, late childhood, early adolescence of tobacco and alcohol, for example, the more likely that individual is going to develop a problem with illicit drugs later on. Alongside that, I think that it's important to point out that, you know, for years the, the lore has been that people 
will really only be ready for treatment after they so-called hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And this is an unfortunate fallacy that has been promulgated in our society, that like all other medical illnesses, we need to jump in as quickly as possible and treat as aggressively as possible in order to prevent the devastating consequences of ongoing drug use. It's like cancer screening. Absolutely. Very, very interesting. Dr. Robert Moran specializes in addiction medicine and psychiatry in Palm Beach County in Florida. He also teaches at Cornell Medical School in New York. York City. Dr. Moran, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. My pleasure. Thank you.